Welcome to the Imperial Healthcare Business Podcast. My name is Ibi Adijugwe and I'll be your host for today. Today we'll be discussing a sensitive topic. We'll be discussing end-of-life care and palliative care medicine. This is a very sensitive topic, especially during this COVID pandemic period. And I would like anyone who may have experienced this on a personal level to please take some time to reflect before listening to this episode. We'll be discussing this in particular to the black community. We've got a wonderful guest with us today. Her name is Dr. Edith Israel. She's a palliative care consultant in one of the leading private charitable hospitals in the country. She previously worked at the number one oncology center in the UK. So I'm very much looking forward to the conversation with her today. So very welcome, Edith. Thank you. Thank you. It's, a, it's an honor and a privilege to be invited. And I'm looking forward to the conversation too. Thank you for hosting me. Wonderful. So we'll start off with our first question, which is, tell us about what inspired your career in, into palliative care medicine. Um, so it's a really interesting question. Um, I think for me, starting off as a junior doctor, um, so this was, what, 2006, um, I, one of my first jobs was in the respiratory ward. And time and time and time again, I would come across patients who had terminal cancer. Um, And I saw how sadly, as a healthcare system, we would sometimes avoid these patients when they became terminal. Um, I saw how certain clinicians would avoid going into their room. I saw how we would move them to a side room just to give them slightly more privacy. But that almost gave us an excuse not to engage with them at that deep and meaningful human level. Um, And I saw the struggles. And then I saw a group of nurses who seem to quite openly uh, and happily go into the room and would seem to make meaningful differences only to find out that they were specialist palliative care nurses. Um, and I ended up shadowing these nurses because they seemed to make the difference. Um, and having gone through medical school, we did not have any training, if you may recall, in palliative medicine. So to then be a first year doctor and see all these patients dying and not feel like we were properly equipped to deal with them, seeing very senior consultants openly saying, I can't deal with this. I think for me, at a human level, I felt drawn and instantly I felt like I would want the knowledge to be able to make a difference. Um, And for me, that was, yeah, that was what drew me to palliative medicine. Um, But I had to get past cardiology, which was my other first love, Uh, hematology, um, renal medicine. I had to get through a few other systems before I decided that, yeah, this was it for me. So, yeah. And that's amazing because, you know, I'm sure you acquired a lot of expertise in those areas, which are actually quite important in sort of end of life care as well. Um, so, you know, we'll move on to, you know, what really palliative care is about. You know, I would say it's it's about making end of life care comfortable and um, bearable for the family. Mm. As a whole, death is mostly a taboo subject. How do you help patients prepare for for this? So it's interesting because increasingly so in the last, I'd probably say in the last decade, there's been um, much more of an understanding of palliative care as symptom control. And that means that it is the optimization of quality of life for patients who have got terminal advanced illnesses who may not be dying. So there is a dichotomy between palliative medicine 
or palliative care and end-of-life care. So end-of-life care often, you know, um, focused on patients who most people think are likely to be in the last few days or weeks or months of life. But actually, the international definition says that end-of-life care is for patients who are either dying imminently up until the last 12 months of life, which most people would be shocked at. You know, if someone has a prognosis of 12 months, that they are an end-of-life care patient. And I think most people will be surprised at that definition. Um, your question relates to how does one make a difference? I think very often in healthcare, we are about giving patients choices. And as you know, and as humans, we want to know what we're dealing with. And in healthcare, as you and I both know, increasingly, and the more advanced illness one has, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, and with all of our advancement, there are still things we don't know about. You know, prognostication is <laughs> notoriously quite difficult. You know, with all of the knowledge, blood tests, CT scans, et cetera, ultimately it's interesting, there's a phrase where we say only God knows. And I think it's such an abstatement because a lot of the time with everything we do, I have to say only God ultimately knows exactly when. But there is an empowerment in empowering patients to be able to take ownership of however long you've got in life. Um, and that brings us on to advanced care planning, whereby patients and people may want to do things. If you know, it's one of those, if you know you've got 12 months left, what is it that you would like to do? Often that ideology is very different to thinking I've got years and years and years. Eventually, I'd like to get married. Eventually, I'd like to say, eventually, you know, but if you think that you've got 12 months or less, it changes your perspective, I think. It changes your priority. Um, it really brings home what is most important to you. What is your legacy? How do you want to spend that time? And for some patients, spending time in a hospital, if they can help it, is not how they want to spend that time. For some, you know, the idea of a bucket list, there are things I want to do. I want to go out with a bang. What have I been doing with my life? You know, faith, again, might be an issue of importance or not, as the case may be. So we make a difference, I think, by helping patients to understand the challenges and limitations of whatever time we've got ahead of us. And if that's short, guiding them through the realities of those challenges, you know, um, and also letting them know that there are things that can be done in, in an area where there is a lot of uncertainty, advanced cancer, advanced life-limiting cardiovascular, neurodegenerative, whatever the condition is, you know, there's this taboo and fear about pain at the end not necessarily every patient has pain, you know, so again, and if you did have pain, how will that be managed? You know, do you want to be at home surrounded by your loved ones or in a hospital? You know, um, what are the symptoms come at the end? What will he, what would it be like, you know, when the end comes? So it's just empowering patients and their families and their loved ones through what is a really challenging, difficult time, giving them hope um, and giving them a tool to be able to have a lasting legacy it's how I see it, you know, and have their own input if they can in that legacy. And and I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I will come back with some personal experiences, both as a doctor and both as, you know, someone in the community where, you know, relatives have been in sort of end of life situations. But I want to come to sort of the black community as a whole. And, mm. you know, these conversations around, you know, advanced care planning around death, yeah. terminal illness, 
they are often rejected either for personal reasons or financial or religious, whatever those reasons are. How do we as a community of of healthcare professionals and in particular mm-hmm. black healthcare pro- professionals, how do we change this narrative? Um, it's a really good question. Um, I remember when I when I started some joint work and we used to do almost joint ward rounds with the ITU team. And, you know, and I remember sort of, it was interesting. I was an ITU SHO, then I came back as a palliative care consultant. And um, I remember some of the challenges of even letting palliative care near a patient, you know, partly because we do what we do and we do it well, but also, oh, I don't know, you know, is that concept of taking away hope. And I think one of the things that I learned from that, there was a picture of um, a presentation. How do you eat an elephant? You start one bit at a time, you know, one stage at a time, start maybe with the leg or whatever it is. So I think it's about, yeah, there isn't um, a single best answer fits all. I don't think, as I'm sure you would agree, that we can necessarily overnight change some of those fixed health belief, cultural beliefs, you know, um, but I think we time um, and understanding compassion um, and changing how we approach and think about things, we can perhaps start to make a difference. So one of the mentality and ideology, I think, is the concept that palliative care or end-of-life care means giving up. And again, perhaps as a Black community, we have faith. And there seems to be, one would think, a dichotomy between faith and perhaps palliative and end-of-life care. So to accept one means to give up hope. And time and time again, I find myself saying to patients, like, we don't give up hope. In fact, I had a patient, it was a Caucasian uh, relative, who said to me, do you believe in God? He said, and by the end, when his um, relative died, he said, I, I no longer believe in God. But I think because for him, it was the idea that I'm expecting a miracle. And because I'm expecting a miracle, I can't, at the same hand, hold on to the possibility that God is a sovereign God that may choose to do what he wants, how he wants. I don't think it's an all or nothing. I think, you know, I don't think one has to give up hope and give up prayer. And I said, I believe in miracles. Let's still pray for miracle, but let's prepare for potentially for the worst, you know, and whatever the outcome is, we've dotted our I's crossed our T's. I think there is perhaps a perception that one has to be forced by healthcare professionals to give up your hope, to give up your faith, to accept, you know, that a miracle is not possible. I don't see it as one or the other. I think we can still believe for a miracle. We can still pray for a miracle um, and we can still face certain realities. I think also um, there is a, a perception of perhaps clinicians having that you know, paternalistic view, they know best, you know, um, and I was advised to do this, do that and do, and despite all of this, which was promised, um, the outcome is still sadly quite dire. And I think it's important as a race that, you know, the black community is given a voice and they're heard and that we come alongside them, given the history and the trajectory of, you know, how, how we got here of, you know, both racism and historically, you know, the slave trade, I think it's very important that we try and work out how we adapt our medical mindset, our guidelines, our protocols, um, and work alongside rather than and or or against you know um I think that's how we show it's funny we spoke about 
a Muslim patient, a 20-year-old patient who died last week and how, you know, mom in her, um, one of the ways mom dealt with it was to make a complaint about everything from the room to the food, everything and everything, you know, and we had to sort of say we accept all of this and we were reflecting on how surprised we were that sadly when her son died, she was so thankful to the stuff. She was really, really grateful. And I think that was because we came alongside her and we said, you know, this is enormously difficult. And we understand that we're not going to get you out of that room. You don't need to come out of that room, you know. And actually, your grief has started very early. We will come into the room to support you. You know, we have this model in our minds of what we think is best, but actually, it's probably not appropriate in this setting. And we're going to see how best to walk your shoe with you where you're at, rather than this is how it should be done necessarily. Um, and I find where we do that, it makes a bit of a difference. And if one person's experience is better, they can share that experience with others. And that's how we approach it, I would say, as, you know, as an organization, as a society. If we can make one person's experience perhaps a bit more palatable, they become the voice for the voiceless. And they become the person that said, well, actually, the end of life got palliative care experience wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And I didn't necessarily have to choose between my faith and, you know, accepting palliative or end of life care. And I, I think you touched on so many important points there. And I think one of the key ones I want to pull out is the fact that with palliative care, it's even more important that the care is personalized beyond cultural, religious yeah. and racial boundaries mm. um, so that it mm. applies to that particular patient in front of you. And yes. as you said, as you correctly said, our approach as clinicians has to be reflective of that. Um, mm. And, you know, I'll, I, I will share my experience in that I had a close relative who died nearly 10 years ago now. And I think back to that experience where I, as a clinician, <laughs> Um, and also a sort of, you know, close family member found it difficult to help the family navigate through, you know, what we knew was very terminal. I knew it was very terminal, but, mm. you know, that dichotomy between being supportive as a mem member of a family and really laying the law of, you know, what the facts are saying and helping the family prepare for what it was. I must say, I personally found that difficult and what I ended up doing in that situation was just, you know, whatever they wanted, I would help out with um, mm. and not necessarily pushing the agenda of, you know, good end of life care. Um, and in retrospect, it's interesting because, you know, his wife many years later said to me, I wish we prepared better. Mm -hmm. And I felt very guilty about that because I could have helped them prepare better but I just didn't know how to navigate that situation between mm. being a clinician and being, you know, a family member. And mm. I think this is, this is something that most healthcare professionals will find themselves in that space at some point. Yes. Um, so, you know, it takes me, it takes mm. us back to the conversation around advanced, you know, care planning mm. because this is a, such a taboo subject. And, you know, we look mm. at the research from America which shows that, you know, black patients tend not to engage with advanced care planning or have advanced life directives, you know, that mm. could aid in personalizing this care. Mm. How do we change that conversation to make people aware that you don't have to even fall sick before you start making some, you know, some plans for the future mm. from a, 
palliative care consultant, mm. you know, perspective, how mm. do you begin to introduce this conversation or or tell people to introduce this conversation to their family members? It's, you know, I think you, you've made so many really interesting points. Um, and just picking up very briefly, I think it's very difficult as a healthcare professional when you are going through that immediate family, you know, you have to wear both hats. It's funny, at our MD, we had a very senior nurse who said, I didn't cry for months when my father died. And when my mother died, she said, I was so angry with myself for not crying. And she said, I think I had my professional shield on. And I thought of such an interesting statement. She said, you know, as the ward manager, I'm so used to being strong for my team that I almost didn't know how to be human, even when my own parents were dying, you know. And I think it's very hard for us to tease some of that. Yeah. Who are we? You know, um, and nobody knows how anybody will react when it becomes quite personal because even as a professional you know you have to deal with this as you said and we see many professionals who struggle with patients you know who they've known for a long time let alone their own mortality but I think going back to your question about advanced care planning um, I remember back in um, 2000 and I think it must have been 2009 um, the Royal College of Physicians did a survey about advanced care planning and talked about how in theory society um, like the concept you know of us being empowered to think about our future um, but that there were a lot of challenges um, about what that meant and you know some challenges also from healthcare professionals um, I think it needs to be at a society level um, because very often, you know, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, we like to think that we live forever and we don't really make that much plans for the future. You know, there's, you know, we have most of us, if you can have pensions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And even now I noticed there is a real increase in life um, in a lot of adverts about life insurance. You know, I don't know if you've noticed, I think very slowly as a society, there is an awakening about we do need to plan for the future, whether it's an aging, rapidly aging population, whether it's we now have, I think, a generation who have looked after their dying parents and who now feel like they're, they're somewhat empowered that if it came to them, what would they want? Death has always been a taboo subject. And slowly, but slowly, I don't think we're there yet. We're starting to chip away at the fact that it's the one certainty in life for all of us, sadly. And it's not something we can ultimately afford to do nothing about. We're still very early at it, but there is that concept that maybe I have a choice. Maybe I can, you know, think about where it is. You know, there is people are much more knowledgeable now in theory about hospices or even maybe dying at home or dying in hospitals, or I don't have to have chemo or radiotherapy, or I can afford to ask about it. I don't necessarily, what are the options? You know, whether it's shopping, whether it's where you see your GP, you know, in a shopping mall versus the GP surgery, there is an increased awareness and a government agenda about planning you know, and impact choices. Um, and, you know, in fact, there is an electronic uh, register that was engineered at the Marsden called CMC, Coordinate My Care, which aims to empower patients to start planning for their future. 
you know, so any patient anywhere can start open up an account and say, you know, if I was to become ill, if I was to be dying, if this was to happen, this is what I would like. Again, it's about choices. It's about stating a preference. It's non-committal, but it gives us as healthcare professionals an idea as to what the patient would want. Um, so I think advanced care planning has to be at all levels. I think even as clinicians as well, I think, you know, we have to walk talk the talk and walk the walk. I think we need to be empowering our patients to say, whilst I'm offering you this and this and that, this chemo, you don't necessarily have to take it there. And what, what happens then, doctor? What does it mean? You know, you spoke about, and I'm really sorry to hear about that experience, your relative who said, if I had known. It's that generation that say, actually, given what I've experienced, I might want to do something differently. Uh, you know, and if we don't know, going back to Donald Rumsfeld, you know, what you know, and what you don't know and what you don't know about what you know about what you don't know speech, um, you know, we can't make any choices. And advanced care planning is all about that. It's at least giving someone a voice to say if X and Y I might want. And I think it's quite helpful that unless it's legally binding, um, it's a choice because people don't want to be too committal because you don't know what the situation is going to be like. There's sort of fear of, you know, I've said this and what if I don't want to be resuscitated, but I changed my mind you know, and I'm dead. Like, how do I speak out? So, you know, it's that again, telling people it's, it's a preference, you know, it can, it's changeable, but if we don't know it, then we make best interest decisions. And Doctors aren't paternalistic as much anymore. You know, we are open to challenge. Um, and that brings people on to, well, actually, I might not want what you're offering me. What does that mean? Where do I go? You know, um, so as a society, I think, you know, there is an increase in knowledge about advanced care, even as healthcare professionals. And I've noticed when I work for the NHS, for example, um, one particular very big Northwest London NHS has a treatment escalation plan for every single patient that comes through. You know, again, there's there's the respect, for example, the respect document, resuscitation guidelines very much now go down the route of and what is it you would like? You know, what are the ceilings of care? Is this patient for dialysis? Is this patient? So all these concepts help to navigate the waters of what would one want and the concept of exploring um, where we're going. Um, but yes, we still have so much more to do as a society because again, too many times choices aren't given um, and people live with that regret of if I had known, I might not have gone down that route and spent the last three months of my life in hospital, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and I agree with you on that. And so for the you know person out there who suddenly feels enlightened, how do they go about actually getting a sort of advanced life directive, advanced care plan made for them in person? Do they go to their, speak to their GP? W yes. What's the process? And what is an advanced, advanced care plan actually for those who wouldn't know who might be listening? So an advanced, really good question. And again, the terminology is different. An advanced care plan in the UK and I guess a number of European countries used to be called an advanced directive and they're used somewhat interchangeably. But an advanced care plan is not a legally binding document, so to say. It's a statement of your preferences and your wishes. If one was to become ill with terminal advanced cancer, which was incurable, I would prefer to spend, you know, the last few days of my life at home. 
I would prefer not to have chemo. Or if one wants to become ill enough to have the heart and the lungs stop working, I would prefer not to be revived when the end comes. I would prefer to be allowed to die naturally. It's a statement of your preferences and wishes that is not legally binding, but it guides clinicians in making decisions and tailoring decisions to your preferences and to your wishes. And if we don't know what they are, and perhaps your relatives aren't about, or you're unable to say that perhaps because you've lost capacity, one is you know, speech impaired or mentally, they're not in a place to be able to voice that, um, then we can all, almost only second guess what one would have wanted. And the number of times I've heard relatives say, I don't actually know what my wife wants. We've never talked about that, you know? And I really regret the fact that we've just never really I don't know if she would want that, you know. Um, so, and I think it's really interesting. We're doing an exploration here at the London Clinic, a private hospital about exploring, empowering patients to have honest conversations with their clinicians. I would say there is still a huge taboo amongst clinicians, some clinicians about having such discussions, you know, and it's multifactorial, many reasons for it. But I think there's something quite interesting about a patient coming to say, I want an honest conversation about where I am in terms of my disease, what the future might hold, how long I might have, um, and what the choices are. We had the patient who the wife walked into my office, um, very tearful and said, I don't think my husband wants this immunotherapy anymore. He's feeling sick all the time. He hasn't left the house. He's sleeping. This is not the quality of life he would have wanted. He needs to have an honest conversation with his oncologist. <laughs> and that was the exact term, you know. Um, and ironically, when I spoke to the oncologist, he was very much like, well, actually, that's fine. If that's what he wants. Do you know we stopped the immunotherapy within a matter of within an hour, basically decision made, you know. And again, I think about there was quite a relief for the oncologist because to some extent, rather than him going down that route, taken away hope seemingly it was quite relief for him I think to hear the patient and he thought well actually if you don't want it then fine let's try without it and the option is still there should you change your mind um, so I think it's really helpful if patients feel enlightened enough to say to their GP their specialist can we have an honest can I talk about what the future might hold for me can I talk about what would happen if I continue treatment, do not have treatment? Um, can I talk about maybe what palliative care might mean and what end of life care might mean? Um, can I maybe make, you know, write some of my preferences and wishes so that it can be shared? Um, and again, a bit like a will, once you've done it, you can revisit it, obviously. But again, it, you know, patients have often talked about it's quite empowering and enlightening. Like I've done it, I've stated it out there. The number of times I've heard some patients say, have you read my advanced care plan? You know, uh, are you guys using that as part of, you know, the decision-making process? Um, it's your opportunity to state your preferences and wishes um, to guide the decisions clinicians make about you is really important, I think, you know, and really empowering. Um, it gives you, the patient, a voice. You know, when we meet as clinicians, as you know, in multidisciplinary team meetings, you know, how empowering is it to say, although we would offer X, Y, and Z, this is actually what the patient wants. We're going by their preferences. You know, we're, we know that we are respecting their wishes. As a clinician, there is a satisfaction in that, you know, because ultimately our focus is about patient-centered care. 
and you know you are delivering patient-centered care, you know? Um, so yeah, we definitely need to encourage. And if there's someone out there who is exploring that, I would say make an appointment with your GP and your specialist because they can they can get the palliative care team to come and have that conversation. But also it opens up Pandora's box about what the options are. And you may well come back to say, I want everything else. I want to live, you know, but at least you've been there. You've had that opportunity, you know, to plan, to think about the implications um, and to you, you've given your team a voice, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's hard to forget that voice because it's the patient's voice is so important. I completely agree with you. And it kind of takes me to, you know, the ultimate question, which I don't think anybody knows how to answer, which is what is a good death? You know, is that death that's pain-free? Is that death that's with less invasion, you know, invasion by clinicians or, you know, all sorts of clinical treatments that may or may not make a difference? Is that mm. just knowing what's ahead of you and being, you know, having the time to just plan and say, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. I'm going to put X, Y, Z in place. Um, yeah. From a palliative care consultant's perspective, mm. how would you describe what a good death is for most people? I think it's all of the above. And I think, you know, initially when I went into palliative care, we had this slightly formulaic view, you know, as healthcare professionals of what we think a good death is. And it's interesting, there's several research now that um, allude to differences between what the clinician thinks what the patient thinks and what the relative thinks <laughs> and how often they could be at odds with each other, you know? Um, and over time I've learned that a good death is probably what the patient thinks is a good death. For some patients, a good death is never really confronting death. They never get, you know, we would like it all dotted, eyes crossed, T's crossed, advanced care plan and all singing, dancing. We've had that conversation, you know, we've done it, dusted. And actually for some, that's not a good death. <laughs> you know, that, that's a terrifying ordeal. That's trauma, you know. Um, I remember, you know, having run the hospice for the last four years, we speak about certain patients dying on their feet. Their good death is literally living life to the max until the last second it's you know even if they died sort of doing all the things that we would not recommend <laughs> that's their good death they lived it out as you know um for some obviously it's a much more prescriptive staged you know eyes dotted t's crossed um and what might be a good death to a patient might not necessarily be a good death to a relative so i spoke to someone on the wall my specialist nurse who we think he wants to die at home and it's interesting, I said to the wife, has he ever said if he wants to be at home? And she said, I don't think he cares, you know, and here we are trying to get him home. And she said, and I said, well, I think he should probably be at the hospice. And she said, I would prefer that because I am, I'm not going to lie, I'm scared of the reality of having to change an entire room to get a hospital bed in. How am I going to cope at night? You know, what if I call the district nurses? They're not there. So I said, what's stopping you maybe from exploring a hospice if you don't think he minds where he dies? And she says, my son, you know, I really think my son would want him at home. You know, versions of good death varies in all of that. Patient's good death is perhaps anywhere, wherever, so long as I'm comfortable, which thankfully he is. Wise version is probably not at home, <laughs> you know, perhaps in a hospice where I can be the wife and support his needs. Perhaps the son's, you know, good death right now might be 
dad dying at home, you know? Um, and I think in palliative care, it's about, if at all possible, reconciling some of those um, challenges and dichotomies and views um, and seeing where and why and how we got to where we got to our concept of what's a good death. And that goes back to people's experiences. Ultimately, I think symptoms being well managed across all cultures, across all, you know, um, trajectories is a significant factor in good death. You know, if patients are as pain-free or as well pain-managed or their symptoms are dealt with, because that brings about the concept of peace, you know, and a peaceful death is often um, synonymous with a good death, you know, um, and there is something about, you know, conversations being had as well. For some, the venue matters. Um, for some, not so much, you know. And ironically, despite all the statistics, um, often done to healthy adults saying, where would you like to die? And 70 odd percent saying home. In my experience, when one is actually ill, I find that that changes, you know, and patients often worry about, it's quite scary sometimes to die at home because of the limitations in the challenges of the support available. Um, and it's not uncommon to hear patients say, I actually want to die in the hospital against all the statistics and against, you know, the concept of getting them home, or I want to die in a hospice, but definitely not in my home, you know. Um, and it's so individualized, going back to your point about it's about the individual. A good death, I think, is a death that is um, peaceful acceptable if one ever can accept it, amenable or palatable to the individual and their loved ones. Yeah. And I agree with you. There's so many things I want to explore <laughs> in what you said. Um, but, I, you know, I remember a patient I was looking after who unfortunately, you know, had, had the diagnosis of breast cancer many years before, but for whatever reason, this is again from the black community, for whatever reason, she did not engage with medical care and came in with a fungating breast mass, you know, in the Western world, in the UK, that should not happen. But, you know, for whatever reason in the background, you know, cultural, religious, whatever reasons, um, that was the path she chose, mm -hmm. which, you know, for me as a clinician, that was sad to see that mm. somehow we weren't able to get through to her, that there was mm. treatment that was available. And unfortunately mm. she didn't access that care. And so, you know, I come from that perspective and the perspective of, I'll give another example of a patient who was very sick, you know, we couldn't do anything. We'd maximized all the things that we had available to treat the patient. And in the end, all he wanted to do was go home and see his dog one last time. Yeah. And, you know, the hospital did everything to make that happen. Mm -hmm. But it took a lot of planning and all sorts of things to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And what I realized was there's not much, as you mentioned, in the community, mm. you know, readily available to step in as quickly as possible for these kind of situations. Because sometimes what you have, what you're looking at is a couple of hours before, you know, the death is imminent. And then you're trying to facilitate, you know, this thing to happen so that they have their quote unquote good death. Mm. So coming from a business angle, do you think there is a place for commercial companies stepping into this arena? Because it's often, you know, the hospice sort of community end of life care has often been a charitable thing. Mm. Do you think there is an opportunity, I should say, or a, a reason actually 
for private commercial companies to step in and fill this gap? Um, it's interesting because I would say for the last 10 years, I have been approached several times about business concepts. Um, and even beyond business, it's going back to that choices. And if we can manage so many things in healthcare, why can't we manage the end? You know, and Cicely Saunders, uh, one of the key founders in palliative medicine made the statement, and I'm paraphrasing it, that how we as a society manage end of life care is a reflection on how we deal with challenges, difficulties, those nitty gritties as, you know, as a society. Um, I think that um, the community resources and availability vary vastly. So, you know, I've had cases where patients have gone home and I have seen, in fact, we had a patient who went home from the private hospital and, you know, within hours was able to be at home in their bed. They had the hospital bed delivered, four-hour oxygen turnaround, you know, um, carers were able to be mobilized. The whole works. And sometimes when it works like that, and it's amazing. And sort of two weeks ago, I remember a relative saying, actually, the support in the community that I've experienced is absolutely speechless she said she's had everybody and everything you know and you have some of that experiences versus some of the other realities so it's very disparate it's very variable even within say you know a region within even London as you know let alone across the country you know um, which makes the experiences very fragmented and very different I think that um, there has been a demonstration that patients are particularly those who can afford it willing to pay for their care. I think increasingly we are seeing, ironically, you know, in a society where the NHS is available at the point to anyone who needs it, it's interesting as a society, you know, private healthcare is no longer just a rich person's um, option. I say that as someone who trained in the NHS, working for a private organisation, and I see people who are not necessarily rich billionaires, but actually they want that a lady I spoke to, an Afro-Caribbean lady, 40 years old, you know, um, just recently saying, I was in an NHS hospital. There was a long waiting list. They were honest to say we couldn't do a CT scan until, you know, a week's time. And I said, you know what, actually, I want to get some answers and I can afford to through my work or whatever it is. And I, I would like to go for that, you know. Um, so I think there is a role for that. I think there needs to be some thought around the ethics of it. I think there needs to be, you know, there's something I, I don't know, perhaps as a society that we frown at people making money from dying. I think that there's that kind of concept that seems slightly alien. But I do think, you know, and working again for a private organization, the number of times I've seen patients say, well, I'll just get private carers. I'll just, you know, because A, um, we can afford it and it gives us that guarantee. I'll just have someone come at home and do the TPM for me. You know, one of the junior doctors I work with, an Afro-Caribbean lady, you may want to interview her later, is setting up um, a private chemotherapy service to give patients chemotherapy at home because we know there is that need, you know. Um, so, again, I think there's something about options. Yes. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily as foreign over the last decade of various people approaching me and exploring it as it was perhaps 10 years ago. Um, and I think there is potentially a room, absolutely. You know, we have so many things at home now, you know, um, a lot of healthcare can happen at home. 
And I think if people have that as an option, that you know you can have whatever good end-of-life care might be to you, or at least amenability to resources so that one knows you have a guarantee that there is a trained nurse who or professional who can be there when needed for that interim and that period. Why not? Yeah, and I, and I agree with you on that. You, you know. I agree with you on that because, again, going back to my relative's experience 10 years ago, it's, it's quite sad to say, you know, again, like I said, we, we didn't prepare in that situation. He wanted to continue as normal as possible. It wasn't that he didn't accept the diagnosis, but... He just wanted things just to be as normal as possible. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the day before he died, he went into hospital acutely with shortness of breath and, you know, it was all very terminal, so to say. And I remember mm-hmm. the A&E consultant saying, um, I'm really trying to get, you know, caring because he kept saying, I want to go home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the a consultants were saying, I want to get all the package of care available before he goes home. And there wasn't anything emergency because it was on a Sunday. Um, mm-hmm. And so that that was kind of what birthed that question about, you know, providing this privately in, in the community. Mm-hmm. Because, again, you know, we talk about health inequalities and things like yeah. that. Actually, some of those health inequalities is because of the social setting Um, As you said, someone who can afford it, you know, goes ahead and just pays for it and has that available. Um, And, you know, again, it was kind of sad because he did die at home, which was his wish, Mm. which we granted, you know, Mm. be allowed to happen, I should say. Um, And, you know, I'm not sure that was the best decision for the family. It was good Mm. for him, but not necessarily for the family. Yeah. Um, So, again, you know, this is where I see the possibility of where, the private, you know, commercial system can come in mm-hmm. and sort of bridge that gap between what the NHS can provide, especially in emergency situations, yeah. and, you know, what is needed. Mm. You touched on earlier on about, you know, where society has moved forward um, mm. with palliative care or end-of-life care, I should say. Mm. Recently, the BMA, so the British Medical Association, changed its position from, mm. going, from being opposed to assisted dying to being neutral recently. You know, the statement Mm. says, we will neither oppose nor push Mm. for um, physician-assisted dying. What impact has that had on your palliative care practice, if at all any? And Mm. if it hasn't, what you think it will have on your practice in terms of what patients will demand and want and need? It's a really, really interesting question. And, um, And that was a big, I think that was a, you know, it was a big change for the BMA um, because for many years, I remember, you know, talking about the Lord Joffrey bill and various other bills that went through that was debated in parliament, assisted suicide, you know, um, and they'd been fairly clear and quite stoical about where they stood. And then there was this shift. Um, and I think to some extent, it's interesting because to some extent, one may argue that that's a reflection of where society is perhaps moving um, or there is an openness exploring that, you know, um, and there's been several, as you know, high profile cases, you know, um, with regards to assisted suicide and euthanasia, etc. And I think in palliative care initially, when some of this debate started, we thought that would perhaps open the floodgates, you know, to um, 
we will get all sorts of requests, you know, and I remember sort of debating very early, sort of coming to palliative care thinking, oh God, you know, as a, as a Christian, what would that mean? You know, is this similar to abortion? Would you have to refer someone to somebody else who practices, but not you? And every once in a while that comes home, you know, I think I would say that probably in the last decade or so, I could probably say I've had maybe one or two patients, you know, and I've, run a hospice for four years, worked in, you know, leading cancer hospitals and et cetera, et cetera. And I would say probably in the last 10 years, I've had probably one or two patients who have asked of, with regards to assisted suicide or euthanasia, et cetera. Um, and I remember maybe, what, yeah, at least one patient who actively explored going to Dignitas. I don't know of any patients that I've come across who has actually actively gone down that route. Um, I still think it's something that as a society we will debate and debate because it is so it's so challenging and we're still very much divided as a, as a society. I think um, the latest results from the palliative care professionals um, would be that overall we are um, not committed to this practice. You know, we are still very much committed to affirming good end of life care, the alleviation of pain um, and um, bringing comfort to those who are dying, which should, in theory, offer an alternative perhaps to assisted suicide. But again, um, if there was a patient who wanted to explore it, it's about exploring what's underneath that. Is it about control? Is it about when and where? Is it a fear about? And as has been the case sometimes, um, I remember a patient with motor neurons disease about, I don't want to be gasping for air, dying, you know. And again, none of that was the reality. And when we spoke through and explained, you know, and I've had one patient again in the last 10 years who in a hospice, um, wanted us to withdraw their NIV. I think we will probably as a society get more and more of that. Um, but I don't think it's, certainly in my experience, opened the floodgates. I don't think it's left us as a profession, as a palliative care profession or other, very particularly challenged that we're not able to deal with it. I think every once in a while, you will get someone who would want that. And I think what's you know, really helpful about it is to come alongside them to explore. And it's really interesting, often the reasons behind that, you know, um, and some of that is about, goes back to advanced care planning, empowering patients, exploring what's the fear or the reality or the challenge or why, you know, um, yeah. But um, I certainly, and I don't think other healthcare professionals in palliative medicine have seen the floodgates or Pandora's box open or all the various things we feared will come as a result of discussing and talking about it. And I think we have to keep talking and discussing um, because again, going back to what you said, it brings um, some clarity and education to society as a whole. Death is still very much a taboo subject. The number of times people you know, assume that you will die in pain I've had patients who've not had pain in their illness and suddenly they will say, what happens when I'm dying in pain? And you're like, the physical pain shouldn't be an issue. You've not had any pain. I mean, psychological pain is a different thing altogether, perhaps, but it doesn't mean that, you know, you would necessarily, you know, die in pain. And there are different ways of managing those symptoms. Um, again, it's not something that we necessarily commonly know about, you know, um, yeah. Yeah, uh, and I'll ask you two final questions. And I hope you answer one. <laughs> um, 
One is, you know, the disparity in terms of, you know, people's pain experience. So there's a supposed, you know, difference in the expression of pain in the black community. Um, and there's the myth about uh, about pain management quickening death and how yes. that has an impact on people, you know, engaging with end of life care. And then mm. I, tie, I will tie that in with the fact that with the government looking to, you know, discuss physician assisted dying mm. and possibly companies like Dignitas opening in the UK. Mm-hmm. What do you think are the regulatory things that need to be put in place to safeguard, you know, if and when this comes into play, which would also hopefully potentially um, reassure the black community who might be worried about, oh, pain medications are going to quicken death and things like that? Mm. Um, So every once in a while, you know, we come across this double jeopardy challenge of you know um is that is there a possibility that um the analgesia could in theory expedite death um and sadly i still have very senior very senior clinicians who in fact last week i was told that dimorphine of five milligrams is going to finish him off um, this is a very senior, very experienced clinician. So there is still that taboo, for want of a better word and concept. And you're absolutely right about that, perhaps more prominent in certain cultures. Um, and I think there is still, sadly, that concept that maybe palliative medicine is about that. It's a backdoor way to euthanasia. It's a backdoor way to, you know, um, expediting death, you know. Um, and very often we say that we neither hasten nor expedite it. I, it it's the number of times I say it's ultimately in God's hands, but it's about the process. It's about making that process. I cannot say when, where, um, and there are regulations that justify. You think, of course, the gospel report and how we use opioids, but there are clear regulations that justify how we use medications and particularly analgesia, you know, um, and we have to be able to demonstrate not just professionally, um, but also, you know, ethically, why you are given what you are given and what the justification is and everything. If anything, we're probably quite cautious in palliative care. We do, again, for obvious reasons, you know, you hear of where there's a shipment report or the gospel report of these horror stories. You know, and we traditionally start very low with painkillers and gently work our way up. Um, and we use a lot of as required analgesia to demonstrate what the person and the patient's own body and needs are rather than us starting at a random dose, etc. So there are clear guidelines about how we practice, how we increment the analgesia, what the effect is, you know, um, and the purpose of why we're given what we're given. Um, but I do agree with you that there is still that huge misconception that we still need to work through. Um, And that comes, I think, with more and more people experiencing what we do for themselves, for their relatives, for their loved ones, and seeing how we can better manage without necessarily expediting death. There's still that possibility and challenge. I think, I mean, your second question was about how, as a Black society, we um, try and come against um some of that misconceptions is that right about yeah yeah. and also what this what 
the society and part of care community can do to prepare for you know commercial companies moving into this area of helping mm. with end of life care um mm. so that people don't think oh you know it's a commercial company they're just looking to make money from me so they're going to push me towards you know making decisions that will expedite you know yeah. the process I think, and, and it's a really important point, I remember going to Parliament, gosh, this was, oh, I don't know, um, several years ago with the Joffe Bill and having a debate with um, Professor um, Ilora Finley, who's a palliative care professor and also a baroness in the House of Lords, you know. Um, and I remember back then, um, it was another region of the Joffe Bill and we were debating what sort of regulations, you know, so everything from um, two independent clinicians reviewing a patient, what are the grounds, you know, so we need to be clear as a society, um, what we define as the grounds for um, assisted suicide. You know, there was a, there's a huge debate still as to is it advanced life limit and terminal condition at which point, you know, um, there's grounds about, you know, is psychological distress. How do you define psychological di distress? I remember the debate about how do we delineate that one is not depressed because mental illness is very high amongst patients with um, end of life and palliative care. You know, so again, how do we determine that the decisions aren't clouded by one's mental health or other manageable physical symptoms that could be better treated with the appropriate support, you know? Um, so I think there needs to be an, ex you know, there needs to be a fairly robust but extensive review of an application by perhaps even a board, you know, of um, varying, almost like they do, I think, for countries where they practice, um, you know, assisted suicide, um, varying professionals from a psychologist to a, um, a psychiatrist to a, a palliative care professional to a generalist to whatever it is to explore. Have we offered, explored and expedited the physical symptoms, the psychological symptoms? Have we explored the various management and we've got to the state where we feel that there is nothing else to be offered or that this is, you know, the 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 most appropriate options what are the alternatives that we're offering the patients have we given a time to explore um and manage this you know psychological psychiatric needs whatever it might be before we arrive at this have we given time to give the patient time to explore the meaning i remember a patient who we withdrew the niv uh, eventually and it took us probably two months from her saying it to we had several meetings with different independent professionals from you know the private health sector secondary healthcare, the gp you know different times to just like, is this really what you want you know and she changed her mind ironically several times you know um we had several meetings to prepare we had several you know i don't want it anymore we had several times to explore well let's optimize your pain optimize your breathlessness was an MND patient, you know, has that helped? Is it that, you know, um, you're distressed about this psychological symptom? Have we had the priest, the Vic? So I think there needs to be a really robust, um, you know, evidence-based, scientifically read um, 
board of specialist individuals and time needs to be given um, and there needs to be an exploration of their loved ones and relatives to make sure there's no coercion there's a fear isn't it that there might be a coercion a bit like the capacity assessment somewhere or the other uh, you know and it's encouraged to explore capacity at varying times at varying situations it needs to be part of that trajectory um, um, I think society still needs to explore how we do that and how we safeguard against that and how we support those clinicians who are making that decision. Because, you know, compassion fatigue and how we, if you're doing something re repeatedly, it can vary and screw your perception. So there needs to be a lot of thought, explore, exploration, evidence, at making sure that there is support across the board you know, that it is ethical, um, it is, yeah, evidence-based, it is robust, there is time to review, there's a finality associated with it as well, you know, and that, you know, who manages complaints or grounds for concerns or, you know, if a relative feels that, you know, perhaps there is um, coercion, who do they report to or not enough time is given and all this all within often someone who has a life-limiting condition deteriorating often rapidly. So, I still think as a society that we have significant amount of assurances to provide to the wider society and to healthcare professionals um, before we go down this route. Um, I think there's a lot of work still to be done, really. Yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more. And in terms of time, we've just come to the end of our time. Thank you so, so much uh, for sharing all your expertise and your insights on this topic. Um, hopefully we've discussed how we can bridge the sort of health inequality when it comes to end of life care um, in, within the black community and with society at large um, as well. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for the privilege. I think it's a really important topic. Mm -hmm.